So now that I'm a parent, three and a half months in, she's still alive, so I'm doing okay. Um, But now that I'm a parent, I feel like I can make parent, not jokes, I can give parental advice. And, And one of the things I've learned, one of the things I've learned in my three and a half months is if you really want to piss off a parent, why you'd want to do this, I don't know, but if you want to piss off a parent, do something unjust or unfair to their child right? Like, that is the Achilles heel to any parent. If you ever met my father, my father was like the most calm, steady person you've ever come into contact with. Nothing made, he was unflappable, unless someone treated my sister or I unfairly, or did something unjust to my sister or I. And then you had to deal with my father, and you did not want to deal with my father. There's, there's something about being a parent that there is a sense of justice that you have, a protective spirit that you have, for your kids. And on the flip side, if you want to make a parent happy, if you want to make a parent's heart sing, treat their kids fairly. Treat their kids with justice. Tell a parent how special and amazing their kid is, right? People come up to us and tell us, which we know is true, so we know in this instance it's not just you making something else, but that that our baby, Eloise, is the most beautiful, incredible baby in the world, right? I, I just like, I mean, I swell up with pride. There's something inside of when you're a parent that that just like when there's injustice done to your kids, you really cannot stand it. And when someone treats your kids well, it brings you more joy than anything else in the world. And the thing I think we forget sometimes is that you and I and the person in front of you and the person to the side of you and the person behind you are children of God. That each and every one of us are children of God. And we're in the middle of the series, The End of Religion. And our point has been that the end of religion, that, that in Jesus, the arrival of Jesus signals the end of the old way of doing religion, and it signals the arrival of something brand new. And the problem is, and we dug in this a bit uh, two weeks ago and then a bit last week, the problem is, is that our, our conscience has been shaped by a particular version of religion. Our conscience has been shaped by a particular version of religion. And in our case, it looks like it's a little bit of what I'm referring to as the temple model of religion, which I'm going to talk about in just a minute. The temple model of religion with a little of the Jesus movement mixed in with a lot of American exceptionalism sprinkled in for good measure. That's the version of Christianity that you and I, our conscience, has been shaped by. And so this year, first week, just a bit of context. We've been talking about what I've referred to um, as the temple model of religion. And in the temple model of religion, there are sacred spaces. This space would not qualify. It is not holy enough. When you go to a sacred space, there is no coffee allowed, and you are quiet and reverent, and something special takes place. In the temple model of religion, there are sacred spaces, and in those sacred spaces, there are sacred texts or oracles or inscriptions. And then there are sacred men, and for whatever reason, it's always men. And these sacred men guard and interpret the text. And then we have what we have said are sacred followers or less charitably superstitious followers. And when Jesus arrives, he turns the temple model of religion on his head, on its head, and he announces something brand new. And for the first 300 years, we see this grassroots movement of love begin to sweep across the Roman world that begins to that, that shows people that there is a different way of living. But then as we looked at last week, and if you missed it, you should go back and listen to the podcast. Um, but we looked at last week that in the fourth century, something happened that took the temple model or the Jesus movement and ended up making it look a lot more like the temple model of religion. 
And this was reinforced, not on purpose, but this was reinforced through the Reformation. And suddenly, instead of a grassroots movement, what we ended up with was a Jesus movement with a lot of temple model religion sprinkled in. And when Jesus launched his movement, it was something brand new. And we said the new movement that Jesus launched was this, that there was a new covenant. No longer did anyone need to mediate God to us. And there was a new command. And that new command, there was not 630 commands, there was not 10 commands, there was one. It was, it was one verb. It was love. Love God, love your neighbor, and love your enemy. And then Jesus gives us a new ethic, a new way of living, and he launches a new movement. Um, a new movement of people, a movement of love. And, and this movement was, was marked by the way that they loved not only their own, but the way that they loved other people. But the problem is, as, as the temple model of religion began creeping into our faith, as it began creeping into Christianity, we began feeling worse as, as followers of Jesus. We began feeling worse about pissing off God than treating one of God's children poorly. Right? We were more concerned, is God okay with me, rather than am I treating other people who are God's kids okay? And we somehow convinced ourselves, we somehow convinced ourselves that, that, that sacred spaces and sacred people superseded treating others well. But what we said is that's the temple model of religion, that's not the Jesus movement. If you've ever sat around trying to figure out exactly how close you can get to breaking the law or doing something wrong or treating someone wrong but still be okay with God, like that's temple model religion because what it basically says is, look, I don't want to make God upset at me but I still want to get by with this thing. Or, or if you believe, and this is a bit controversial, but if you believe that there is some ritual or some prayer or some Roman road, or some ABC that you can say that absolves you of your responsibility to make restitution with the people you have wronged, that's temple model thinking. And if your view, if your view of religion keeps you from loving people, that's temple model thinking. And here's the thing, at the heart of the temple model, it's really about you and it's about me. The temple model religion is centered, is, is you-centered. What must I do? What must I believe? How can I be right with God? Because at the end of the day, the temple model and religion in general is all about you. Think about this. Think about how we pray. Right? Oh God, will you bless us and will you, will you expand our territory? Will you, will you bring us favor? Right? We're always praying, God, help us. God, bless us. For some of you, this is why you give. You want to make God, you want God to be happy with you or for God to bless you. For some of you, this is why you obey. And what it ends up happening is what feels to be God-centric is actually you-centric. And temple model thinking, it always gravitates towards rules and rituals. Because you want, because naturally we want a checklist. We want a list of do's and don'ts to make sure that we are doing okay with God. And we kind of go down through, and this is at our best, we go down through and like, okay, I got that one, I got that one, and I got that one. Temple model thinking always gravitates towards rules and rituals. What must I do? What must I do to be right with God? And that's a fine question to start with, right? What must I do to be right with God? That's a great starting point. But the problem is, so many of us, we never move beyond that question. 
I, mean, I hear some version of this all the time, right? Like, I'm not growing spiritually or that, you know, I, I'm not being fed, which is fine. If you are a baby Christian, that is an appropriate critique. But at some point, we have to say, wait, are you an adult, right? When do you begin to feed yourself? Because we make our religion, we make our religious experience all about us, about getting God's attention or God being happy or tuning in to God. And so the temple model religion is all about rules and rituals and it leads us to figure out what must we do. But the problem is, is it also, it always leads to loopholes. I mean, in my faith journey, right, I was always looking for some loophole. Well, Jesus didn't really say that. Or did you read Paul? Because I think if we understand Paul correctly, and what we end up doing is we try to find ways to justify ourselves. Because ultimately, it's about getting something from God and not losing God's blessing or God's favor. And so what happens is rituals and um, rituals become escape clauses. And, and then we end up with followers who are hypocrites. One of the reasons that some of you are checking out of Christianity or you are on your way out the back door is because you've met way too many people who claim claim to believe one thing and live another way because we're looking for rituals. We're seeing exactly what we can get away with and still be okay with God. And what ends up is we have a very subtle form of of self-centered religion. And And here's the thing. The Jesus model, the Jesus movement, is centered on the you beside you. The Jesus model is centered on the you beside you. If you are a Democrat, it's centered on the you to the right of you. And if you are a Republican, it's centered on the you to the left of you. And if you are a racist, it is centered on the you that you want nothing to do with. And if you are someone that has something against another person or you have an enemy, it is centered on the person you see as an enemy. And I think if you use this lens, right, this idea that, that the Jesus movement is centered on the you beside you, and then you begin to read the New Testament and begin to read the words of Jesus and begin to read Scripture through that lens, you will, like, your eyes will be opened. You will see the text in a way you have never seen them before. Because throughout the New Testament, we're invited to love people the way our Heavenly Father loves people. This is my commandment, that you love one another. How should we love one another? Just as I have loved you. The Apostle Paul says it this way, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want to break this down, and I want to look at some of the thou shalt nots. And what does this look like when we begin to say, what if we reframe the way that we view Scripture? from this new lens. But before we do that, I need a glass of water because it's really warm in here. Is anyone else a little warm? You also are welcome to get up and get a drink if you are a little warm. Um, this, this space is, you get people in here and it turns out we put out body heat. I did, I did the research once to see exactly, um, thanks Paul. I did the research once when I was trying to figure out air conditioning for the space, exactly how much um, body heat every person puts out. And I think it's every person puts out 100 BTUs an hour or a minute. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> it was a lot. And I figured out that our air conditionings here, our units, whatever they are, 
were, were strong enough to cover, to, to outweigh about half the body heat in the room. And so when it was really warm outside, it was a losing battle. Anyway, I want to get some water before I go into this next section. Because um, I got some questions I want us to look at. Why should we tell the truth? Why should we be truth tellers? Now, growing up, I was an overly conscientious person. I was always afraid of lying to people. Now, that didn't mean I didn't twist the truth. I just didn't want to be like, I didn't want to technically lie because I knew if I lied, the reason we shouldn't lie and the reason I should be a truth teller was, well, because the Bible said so, right? It's in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. At least that's the way the King James Version puts it. Um, But the reason that we shouldn't lie in the Jesus model, the reason we shouldn't lie is because you are covering yourself at someone else's expense. When you are lying, you are saying to another person, you are not worthy of the truth. The reason Christians shouldn't lie, the reasons Christians should be truth teller, has nothing to do with the fact that the Bible says don't lie. That's not the reason we don't lie, right? The temple model says, look, I'm gonna tell the truth so God will love me. But the Jesus model says, no, you tell the truth because you love people. Or this, why are we generous? Right, why are we generous? And we, we could list off some verses about, from Malachi about giving, you know, giving a 10%, and if we don't, we're stealing from God. No, the reason we are generous is because when we're generous, we help the pers- it helps the person we're generous to. The problem is that so many of us, we've been entrusted with resources, but we keep such a tight grip around the resources that we've been entrusted to steward that we are unable to share it with other people. And until we learn to be generous, until we learn to loosen our grip, we will never truly learn to love other people. That's why we should be generous. Or another one, why should we not gossip? Well, that's an easy one because Jesus tells us clearly not to gossip or we could quote other verses about malicious talk or we could go on and on. But that's not why. Right? The reason you shouldn't gossip is because it hurts someone else. The reason you shouldn't gossip is, gossip is because it undermines the integrity of another person, of a child of God. That's why you shouldn't gossip. Listen, even if there was nothing in the Bible about gossiping, right, even if it was never listed anywhere in the scriptures, you still shouldn't gossip. Because at the end of the day, the New Testament imperatives, the rules that we are so interested in keeping are not meant to be the end all. They are an example of what love looks like. The New Testament gives us examples about how to love God by loving other people. And loopholes, loopholes are always trying to find a way that we can get around the law, get around loving others. But Jesus calls us to a new way of living. And in the earliest church, in the earliest church, like they they tried to model, they modeled what love looks like. When we look at Acts chapter two, they gave, they sold all they had and they cared for one another. And what we find in the New Testament is this. This isn't Kevin making this up. In the New Testament, it says all the laws and the prophets, all of the laws and the prophets hang on these two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. But what I find interesting is the message of Jesus is not new, or the message that Jesus is trying to get. Jesus is the fulfillment of what God has been trying to do and what God is trying to, 
what God has tried to say since the beginning of his history with his people. You heard of the Ten Commandments. There are these ten things in a movie a long time ago with Charlton Heston are etched onto stone. In the Ten Commandments, though, that are given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the first four commandments deal with the way we love God, and the last six commandments deal with the way we love other people. And everything we read in the scriptures is an example, is an illustration, is a commentary on what it looks like to love God by loving our neighbors. They're not there simply for your benefit, but they are for the benefit of others. They're not for God's benefit, right? We sometimes think we are doing God a favor. God is fine, right? God is okay. We're not doing God a favor. This is for the benefit of the people that God cares about more than anyone else in the world, and that's his children. Now, if you're listening closely, you might be saying, Kevin, this sounds like a hippie sermon, right? Like, (laughs) all we need is love, love, love. I mean, you know, we tried that in 68. It was called the summer of love, right? It was everywhere. All, you know, if we could just love everyone. It sounds a bit like Christian like the Christian uh, Woodstock, we should just go out and buy Birkenstocks and, you know, some kind of sentimentality, sloppy faith. But, but here's what I want you to hear, that the Jesus model, you're right, the Jesus model is significantly less complicated. It's significantly less complicated, but it's far more demanding. The Jesus model is significantly less complicated, but it's far more demanding because at the epicenter of our faith, at the epicenter of our faith is a man who claims to be sent from God, who claims to be the son of God, who claims to put God on display, but the story ends, his time on earth ends with him being crucified to a tree, splattered in his own blood and the saliva of the people who put him there. That is the ultimate end of love. It's far less complicated, but it's way more demanding. See, because the problem is in the temple model of religion, the way we've done religion, it's always easy to find a hiding place. It's always easy to somehow convince ourselves and to justify our actions to ourselves. Well, Jesus didn't really mean that. Well, that's in the Old Testament. That's not the way things are now. But I think... But I think if we begin to say, like, what, what does it look like to love other people? What does it look like to be merciful? How merciful are we to be? We are supposed to be merciful just as our Heavenly Father is merciful. It's hard to get around things like this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is why the Christian faith is so powerful because as followers of Jesus, there's no place to hide. There are no loopholes. There are no workarounds because intuitively, intuitively, we know the answer to the question, what does love require of us? And Jesus says, look, this is my command that you love one another, and then he calls, then he lays down his life, and he shows us what love looks like, and then he says, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And that becomes the, que- that becomes the lens through which we, we begin to live our lives is this question, what does love look like, or what does love require of me? Now, can you imagine just for a moment if, if when you were dealing with a family member or you were dealing with a friend and you were in a conflict, 
If instead of justifying yourself or figuring out, am I right or are they wrong or who's right or wrong in the situation, if your question, you, if the lens was just this, what does love require of me? Now, Charla and I, uh, my wife Charla, who's standing in the back with her beautiful baby, um, we've, uh, she's spectacular, both the wife and the baby. I was talking about the baby, but. <laughs> and Charla and I, we have had, I've tried to figure out a good word for this. Um, we've had some discussions throughout our 11 years of being married. And, and in these discussions, I n- often will walk away with a sense of puffed up self-righteousness about how wrong she was and about how right I was. And even while this, I was been, over the past few weeks, while I've been working on this um, series, I've been thinking about this question. Right? And when I'm in an argument with someone or when something's going wrong or I'm having a disagreement with someone, my immediate reaction is I want to jump to the loophole. I want to justify myself. I want to figure out why I was right and they were wrong and why I am justified in my anger. And every time that that's happened, this question comes rushing back to me. Yeah, but what does love require? Not what can you get away with. Not what can you justify yourself on. But what does love require? Imagine if the Christians in our city of all different backgrounds and, 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 and areas of the country that we're from, imagine if we would come together and just ask this question, what does love look like? See, in the earliest church, in the earliest church, what we saw is a group of people, rich and poor, slave and free, people who were part of the elite and people who were children who'd been cast off. And they came together and they gathered around and they celebrated a common meal and they broke bread and they shared a cup and they remembered that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he offered himself as a sacrifice, right? They, they came together in love. And people who would never gather around the table, people who would never associate are united to God and to one another. And all they had, all they had, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the Bible telling them how to live. In fact, the Gentile Christians didn't even have the Hebrew Scriptures. All they had were some fragments of letters and the stories of Jesus and how he loved other people and that they were called to love in the same way that Jesus was loved. Imagine, imagine if people were critical of us because of what we believe. They're like, they believe the dumbest things. Do you, can you believe that those people believe that there is a guy who died and then rose again? They were critical of us for what we believed, but they were envious of us for the way that we loved each other and the way we loved other people. Now, if you've been paying attention, a critique you could make is, Kevin, this sounds awfully like material here and now, right? Where is all the talk about the glory of God? Right? I learned in the catechism, right? I learned in my catechisms that, that the, the chief aim of men, man is to glorify God and to enjoy him always. Now that you ask about the glory of God, I, I have a verse that Jesus has something to say about this. He says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will turn and he will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance that the king has prepared for you 
since the creation of the world. And you can imagine at this moment that the people who have been called forth, they begin to turn to one another and say, what is it that we've done to be called blessed? Was it all the scripture we read or was it the amazing worship services? What is it that we did to be called blessed? And then Jesus continues, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. They start to murmur among themselves, did you, I've never even seen this guy before. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Did you invite him in? I mean, I invited Jesus in my heart. Maybe that's what he's talking about. It's an analogy. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The question is, when did we see you? See, in in the tradition that I've grown up in, in the tradition that some of you grew up in, there have been moments that I have felt closer to God than any other time, right? There have been moments when I've been reading scripture and and a, a realization about who God is hits me in the face and I feel in that moment like I have experienced God in a way that I've never seen and experienced God before. Or I've been in a worship service, I've been in a worship service where, where God's spirit moves in a powerful way and I feel more connected and like I felt and saw God more than I've ever seen God before. Or I've been in a special sacred place, maybe walking in a, you know, through a a field or on a trail or, you know, out in nature. And I have this experience where I feel as if I experience God. But the thing is, none of that is for God, right? That, that moment, that revelation while I'm reading scripture, that is for me. That moment in the worship service, this is key. Listen, when we come together to sing, it is not for God, it is for us. And that moment when we are walking through nature and we experience, and experience God in a unique way, that is for for us. That's for us. And the king will reply, when did we see you? When did we experience it? When did we see you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you did for me. The Jesus model, the Jesus movement, it centers on the you beside you. And your devotion to God is illustrated and demonstrated and authenticated by your love for others. Now, as any parent knows, as any parent knows that if you mistreat their kids, no amount of singing, no amount of generosity, no amount of sucking up in the world is going to make it right with them. If you mistreat their kid, that's not going to make it right with them. Isaiah 58 says it this way, Day after day they worship me. They seem ready and willing to come near and worship me, but is this what I've asked for? The worship I request is this, set free those who are held captives, who are held by chains without any reason. Untie the ropes that hold people as slaves. Set free those who are crushed. Break every evil chain. Share your food with the hungry and provide homeless people with a place to stay. Give the naked clothes to wear. The best way, the best way you can honor a parent, the best way you can honor a parent is to care for their children. 
is to do justice and to be fair to their children. It's almost like this idea that, that we heard once before, whatever you do for the least of these, whatever you do for them, you do for me. What if, what if it was that simple? What if we got this one thing right? What if we said, look, we're, we mess up on a lot of things, but the one thing we're going to get right is how we love other people. That we are going to learn to honor God through the way that we love other people. I believe if we get this right, it has the power, it has the power to transform your relationships. It has the power to transform the neighborhoods you live in. And as cheesy as this sounds, it has the power to transform a watching world because there are people who are longing and hungry to see Jesus put on display. They are looking for a community of people who put love on display. And we're going to wrap up next week. Let's pray. God, I'm convicted every time I, I speak these words because I know so often that I choose the option other than what love requires. And I pray that, that as we go forth from this place this week that you would have the thing that is emblazoned on our mind is this question. What does love require? and that that becomes the lens through which we learn to live.